Hello, and welcome to this episode of the Missing Link for SLPs podcast. We are starting a very unique mini-series right now, and we're going to be talking about transgender voice from the surgeon's perspective, from the therapist's perspective, and also from the client's perspective. Our first guest that we are going to be welcoming is one of United Kingdom's top gender voice surgeons. Mr. Chadwan Al-Yagchi is an innovative, experienced, and respected consultant, ear, nose, and throat surgeon. He specializes in adult and pediatric laryngology. He treats many voice disorders, including airway stenosis, voice disorders, swallowing difficulties in adults and children, and much more. Mr. Al-Yagchi also has a specialist interest in voice feminization surgery, which was developed during his time working in close proximity to the Gender Identity Clinic in London. He went on to introduce a number of voice feminization procedures to the UK. This includes his own modification to the Wendler glottoplasty technique, which has since become the preferred method for voice feminization. Through his pioneering work in the field of gender affirmation surgery, Mr. Al Yadchi has been able to help hundreds of trans women to achieve a voice that more accurately reflects their gender identity. Outside work, Mr. Al Yadchi's main interest is in cooking, and he used to write a food blog. He would have been a chef in a different life. I am so excited to welcome Mr. Chadwan Al Yadchi. Hello, and welcome to this episode of the Missing Link for SLPs podcast. I am so incredibly honored and excited to introduce you to our next guest. Mr. Chadwan Al-Yadji is an innovative, experienced, and respective consultant ear, nose, and throat surgeon. He specializes in adult and pediatric laryngology, and he treats many voice disorders, including airway stenosis, voice disorders, swallowing difficulties in adults and children, and much, much more. Mr. Al-Yadji also has a special interest in voice feminization surgery, which was developed during his time working in close proximity to the gender identity clinic in London. He went on to introduce a number of voice feminine procedures to the United Kingdom. This includes his own modification to the Wender glottoplasty technique, which has since become the preferred method for voice feminization. During work in the field of gender affirmation surgery, Mr. Al Yachi has been able to help hundreds of trans women to achieve a voice which more accurately reflects their gender identity. Outside work, Mr. Al whose main interest is cooking, and he used to write a food blog. He would have been a chef in a different life. So let's welcome Mr. Chadwan Al-Yadji. We are with Mr. Chadwan Al-Yadji, and I am working hard to pronounce your name right. It has, will you say it for us, please? Uh, I think you did really well there. So it's Chadwan Al-Yadji. Thank you. And you are a surgeon, yet in America, we would go by doctors, and over in the United Kingdom, you go by mister. And we can you explain why that is? Uh, yes, there is a historical background to it. So as when you finish medical school, you get the title doctor and you become a doctor. So if you are a surgeon, once you get your membership of the Royal College of Surgeons, you become your title changed to mister. While if you are a physician, all other medical specialty remain a doctor for the rest of your career. And the historic background to that, it was back in the day, it used to be a Royal College of Surgeons and Barbers. So us and the Barbers were all in the same category. And doctors, the Royal College of Physicians would not acknowledge us as equal doctors. So we had the title Mr. And then, but we stuck with it and we like it now. Oh, I love history. I love history. Will you share with us why you became a surgeon? 
It's, it's something that goes back to my childhood. I come from a very scientific-minded family. You know, both my parents were biology teacher by training. You know, like we have, I was fascinated by science and biology, never read any storybooks. I always read science books, etc. And then you, you see around you like role models, dad friends who are like surgeons making a difference to people's life and you get, you get inspiration. So decided possibly around my teenage years to get into medical school. Prior to that, I thought I was going to be either a graphic designer or a computer programmer of some sort, but uh, changed my mind around in high school to go for medicine. And then going for surgery, I think once you are, once you finish your training, you know, some specialty you choose is a lot related to your personality, I feel, in medicine. So if you're a type of person who wants to get things done, you become a surgeon, you know, because somebody comes out, come in with something, comes out without it. It's, it's you offer them solution on the spot. And so it, it's possibly stems from there. So it is, it is right. Why did you choose to specialize in voice feminization surgery? It's something I got, again, I got um, exposed to that very early on in my training. So I finished medical school. Uh, since medical school, I wanted to be ear, nose and throat. I wanted to do ENT. That, that was my chosen specialty since medical school. But when I started training in the UK, I worked, I did most of my training, postgraduate training, you know, residency and the years before residency at Charing Cross Hospital, where I work now as a consultant. So this is where I ended up uh, staying forever. So do, Charing Cross Hospital, next door to us, we had the first gender identity clinic in the UK that goes back to the 70s, 60s, actually. And it was like just next door to us. And we have this historic link between Charing Cross Hospital and the gender identity clinic. So we provided all the surgical treatment of all different specialty, osteology, facial plastic, plastic surgeon. So since early days, I had, I've been exposed to like very niche area when we, we used to perform um, gender, you know, vo gender affirming voice feminization surgery. And I'm now the third generation of surgeons who took that work. So it started with Mr. Anthony Cheeseman, who introduced cracothyroid approximation to the UK, then my colleague, Professor Gori Sandu, and then I took it over now and pushed it a bit further with the introduction of glottoplasty. Yes. I have heard that I teach anatomy and physiology. I, I teach yeah, for voice disorders. Um, I've worked over in London as, as um, in the UK, Nottingham, as a, a specialist a voice therapist. Um, so I'm so excited to hear the work that you've done and where that drive is coming from. Where does that drive come from then for you leading the gender affirming voice surgeries in the United Kingdom? Yeah, as, as I said, I got I got the privilege of being exposed to um, you know gender affirming surgery since like just finishing medical school and starting early years of residency, and I saw firsthand how much of a difference it makes to people's life. You know, the patient access to treatment, you know, like fifteen years ago, is a bit different to now. You know, social acceptance is a bit different. So it used to be well, it's still a major life hurdle. Tr transgender people need to jump through you know to get to get a voice that matches their identity but early on you know like 15 years ago when i was first starting after medical school it was very niche but it made a huge impact to the life of um, transgender uh, clients patient we see and then i took an interest research interest at the beginning collecting data and all of that stuff you do as a first year resident and that that interest stayed with me till this day so 
Shifting away a little bit from what drives you, I would like to have the conversations change a little bit more on the clients that you have that come and work with you. Is there anything you wish that you knew those clients knew before they first consulted with you about voice feminization surgeries? I wish they knew about it a lot more than they do because there is very little resources out there, unfortunately. It's still still an area that is not really covered in material that is accessible to everyone, that's widely available, the resources are not there. There is a lot in literature, medical literature, but there isn't a lot that's easily accessible to people. So to know about the surgery, to to these days, you know, you, you would imagine with a with the internet and the availability of data that we all have, this should be second nature. Everyone should know that this thing exists and have a lot of clients that come to me. I was like, I've never knew there is such a thing. Right. And that, that, that's very common to, to come. So that's one thing. The other thing, I wish there is good, reliable resources people read. You know, forums, internet forums and support networks are essential. But I think having information coming from medical resources in an accessible language is also essential so people can have well-rounded understanding of what to expect hear it from both patients who went through the process but also also clinician who delivered the service as well so you are going to be the voice from the surgeon's perspective on what to expect can you give us an overview of what to expect in the surgeries so in general there is three approaches, three general approaches you can take for to feminize the voice. So it's, it's like a strings of a musical instrument. So you either need to increase the tension, have a shorter string or have a thinner string. And the same, it's very crude um, way to describe it, but this is roughly how vocal cords work. So the general three approaches, if you want to get a more tension, you go with a cracothyroid approximation, which stretches the vocal cord and hold them in place. And that's becoming old-fashioned. I think there is a lot of downside to cracothyroid approximation. It's hardly ever uh, practiced these days. There is a lot, so much better alternatives on all accounts. So it's very, very rarely I would do cracothyroid approximation and for very exceptional circumstances. The other two approaches is either get a thinner cord and we can do a vocal folds muscle reduction with a CO2 laser or any alternative laser and that will thin the muscle in the vocal cord leading to increased pitch. Mm -hmm. Or by far the most reliable and most widely practiced nowadays is anterior web glottoplasty, Mm -hmm. which aims to shorten the vocal cord. So if you, we use either, you know, you need to de-epithelialize, remove the lining of the front half of the vocal cord and then stitch them together and that will shorten the vibrating segment of the vocal cord. It's like if you're playing the guitar, when you press your finger, note goes up, and that does pretty much same principle applies here. And you were instrumental in making some of those um, changes or adding to that glottoplasty procedures? Yes, so the glottoplasty was first described in the um, late 80s, early 1990s. So it was Professor Windler, who is the operation is named after. So it's a Windler's glottoplasty. So he used to work in Charité Hospital in Berlin. Mm-hmm. And he noted that people who comes with iatrogenic uh, webs, so somebody who had surgery on the larynx, damaged the anterior commissure of the vocal cord and ended up with a web anteriorly, they have a higher fundamental frequency, higher pitch voice. So when he had his first transgender client coming to his clinic asking for a voice feminization, he thought, why don't we create a web and see if that works? And it did. And now, nowadays, that become 
the standard procedure practice across the world. And each of us surgeons who practice these, and we are still a very small pool, unfortunately, um, each one of us have their own modification, how you put the sutures, what instrument you use, what do you combine with it, etc. So it's all modification of the original technique described by Professor Windler. Wonderful. Can you give us some of the factors that you as the surgeon consider in considering a patient for voice feminization surgery? And do you you take every patient that comes your way? Yes, I almost take every patient. So I don't want to take uh, say I will take every patient. But I think it is essential part of the gender transition. It's a gender affirming surgery. It's not a cosmetic procedure. And it makes a huge difference to a person's life. You know, I wake up in the morning, I open my mouth and speak. All I need to worry is about what I say. Imagine if every time you talk, you need to worry about how do I sound? How am I being perceived? What do I want to say? How is, you know, it's very difficult. It's draining to do this every single day in every situation, social, professional. It's really life limiting. So I will take, yes, most patients, eight, and then you will tailor the approach to individual person. So there are, you, you know, some people will do better with therapy first. Some people will do better with surgery than therapy. I think the jury is out on which approach is better. And I think you need to individualize that. And then other factors that are essential that patient have realistic expectation, patient have well understanding of the procedure and understanding of the limitation because there are vocal trade-offs that they're going to go through. You know, it's, I can, I can give them higher pitch. I will take some of their quality of their voice or the ability to use their voice in certain uh, setting. So you will have that discussion with the patient, um, make sure that the patient have the right support network around them. And then I will, I'll tailor my approach to an individual person. Wonderful. Um, you mentioned that sometimes it works. Where do most of your, it works well if they have a therapy or they've had um, some maybe voice training beforehand or some therapy beforehand. Are there factors that would not qualify a patient for your services? Possibly one. So there is technical side of things. There is patient suitability for the surgery, the general anesthetic, anatomy. Do they have, can I have access? Do I need an alternative approach, etc.? Patient, as I say, sometimes if I have patient with unrealistic expectation or if I have doubt on the patient, you know, understanding of the procedure, I will take a second opinion. I will sometimes will ask an opinion from um, gender psychologist or a gender psychiatrist to have that to have that other discussion and have patient think about other other aspects to it. You know, patient comes in and I was I want my voice to be this, but there is it's there is a bigger picture and it needs to fit with the bigger picture. It needs to fit around their life, their work, etc. And if there is if I'm how if I'm not sure that the patient have the right support structure uh, around them, I will I will make sure that is there before we proceed with surgery because it's a life changing event. It, it absolutely and people need, need to be prepared for it properly. They they absolutely do. Some of the the clients that I have worked with, um, they can get so far with the voice um, gender affirming voice work that we do, but they need that surgery to get them to that final. That yeah. And I understand the moment they open their mouth, they're misgendered and how painful that is. And it just cuts down on who they can authentically be. So yes. I love that you are taking in the whole approach of 
of the whole entire person that you are working with. Exactly. So who are some other members on your team that you work with? Then you mentioned um, a, a psychologist. Yeah, so we, I, I work very closely with a speech and language therapy. So I work with Christella Anthony, who is one of the leading uh, speech and language pathologists in um, gender affirming voice therapy in the UK. So again, I know I know Christella since I was earlier years residency because she used to work in our clinic and at the gender identity clinic mm-hmm. back in the day. Uh, so I work very closely with Christella and her team of therapists. So she have like three or four therapists in her practice. And so, and we have open dialogue always, and then we share patients and we take each other opinion. So it's a true partnership uh, between us. Um, I work with other therapists around because my patients come from a wider geography as well. Um, and, and then the, the rest of it is our surgical team, um, nursing team, etc. Mm-hmm. So I think the core people is, is going to be the voice surgeon, a speech and language therapist with easy access to psychologists and psychiatric support. Do you take in your intakes, do you take any, um, and, and this may be somebody else on the team, do you take any um, pre-operation measurements, spectrums or habitual pitches or anything like that? Uh, yes, we do. So I do that and also Christella do that. So I do it in my, in my clinic when I see them first, but then when they go for their pre-op therapy, they will have a comprehensive assessment. So in general, I will do um, free speech, fundamental frequency, um, rainbow passage, reading rainbow passage, fundamental frequency, maximum formation time. I do vocal range profile, uh, possibly not every single patient. And I do VHI 10 and transwoman voice questionnaire as a, a patient reported outcome measures. So mm-hmm. this is my standard set of measurements, acoustic and voice um, patient reported measures. Many of the same measurements we do here. Um, yeah. What is your optimal range? How young? How old? Um, I, well, how young is 18? I can't operate on children, you know, from regulatory point of view, um, because I don't have pediatric practice in my national health service. So I do not operate on children. So it needs to be 18 as my minimum age because of that. Um, and I do not have upper limit. Um, I know there is variation in literature on ideal age. And I think there is um, some evidence in literature that the operation works better in younger population under 40. Anecdotally, from my own figures, I do not see that correlation. However, I do see that patients under 40 or under 30, they will do generally better. Mm-hmm. But I think that pitch is one thing, but the whole resonance, their ability to work with, with a therapist, their speech pattern that they have picked. When you have early years transition, you picked a lot of speech pattern already. So you already, you're speech pattern is already feminized when you come in. And all of these factors play a role of the overall success of the surgery. I think the figure of fundamental frequency, I don't think age makes a difference. Okay. If you have a client, when you have a client that is looking for a surgeon such as yourself to perform this surgery, what do you recommend that that client or patient looks for in a voice affirming surgeon? Um, Above all, go to an ear, nose, and throat surgeon um, because, and in particular, somebody who is a laryngologist with a subspecialist interest in the laryngology, somebody who operates on the vocal cords 
all the time. Somebody who understands the physiology of voice and the anatomy of voice and the anatomy of the vocal cords. Um, and so that, that's as a default. So you need that person with that back, background knowledge. And in terms of a voice feminization surgeon, because again, not every laryngologist do this work, try to go for a person who have good experience, who have good results, and who do this operation often enough. Yes. I think like, like a lot of things, if you do an operation once or twice a year, maybe you shouldn't be doing it. Maybe you should ask somebody else who does it day in, day out. It just, there is build up of experience. You get exposed to it. You will be, you would have seen variety of patients. You can deal with the different situations while when you do this occasional treatment. So go to somebody who have a good track record. And a comprehensive team like you have. Exactly, exactly. It's, it's, not, it's not a solo practice. It's, it's, a, it's, a team, it's a team sport and you need to have that right team around you. Right. What would you say to the patient who is questioning whether to go ahead or not? Any words of advice? Um, don't rush into it if, you are, if you're asking yes or no. And if you are considering if it's the right thing or not, maybe you should start with therapy first. Therapy is non-invasive. It has no downside on terms of voice, apart from the investment of money and time. Uh, of course, but in terms of voice, in terms, it's non-invasive, it's reversible, it has no lifelong changes. Start there, possibly. Have an opinion from the therapist. Work with a therapist that you trust, that have the right experience. See if you can achieve your goals by therapy alone, and then don't don't rush into surgery. It's a, again, it's a life-changing um, operation. So make sure you're doing it for the right reasons with the right person at the right time for you. As a therapist who does treat gender-affirming voice work, we also do things with language patterns, speech patterns, prosody patterns, gestures, all the things that add to that feminization. Of course, you know, like I, I can change a single parameter. I can change fundamental frequency. That's all I can do. So my part of the overall picture of voice feminization is really minimal. But, you know, it's all the other aspects to it, the intonation, the um, language content, you know, the, the resonance, all of that is essential to have a good, natural sounding voice and a natural outcome. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yes. I so believe in the work that you do. Yeah. Next question. When a person does go through um, a surgery, tell us about the recovery time. Um, the recovery time, it's varies a lot between surgeons because there isn't any evidence base really. So each of us think what they like, what they think is right. I think we all take a cautious approach in terms of vocal rest. So I asked my patients to have a complete voice rest for one week and maybe a word or two, 10, 15 words a day in the second week. So it's very minimal. So it's just trying to get the right balance between Protecting the sutures, when you put, you put the stitches, you don't want to stress these stitches and leading to breakdown. Uh, but early mobilization is essential for the healing of the vocal cord. So we, we all know you shouldn't leave, after, when you do any other voice surgery, you shouldn't leave a patient on a prolonged voice use. You need to get voice rest, sorry. So you need to get that right balance right. And I think it's possibly one week complete voice rest, second week very, very minimal. It works good in my hands. I know other surgeons will keep patients quiet for a whole month. Some will do one week, some will do two weeks. It's variable. How many follow-up visits? Um, I do a minimum of two. So if 
we communicate with the patients early on about the recovery, etc. I like to do the first visit, ideally around three to four weeks, um, because at that time, a lot of the healing would have happened. So it's a good indicator how the healing is going to go. And it's a good indicator where the voice is going to be. It's very early days and a voice pitch, especially in the early week or two, pitch goes up and down quite significantly. There is a lot of hoarseness, a lot of strain. Vocal, the voice is going to be very weak. So around three to four weeks, things settle down. So as long as the recovery is going well and we're communicating with the patient via email, etc., everything is, is looking good as it's on track. So we'll do the first visit around three to four weeks. And that will be around the time when they start their first session of therapy post-operatively. And then we do another, another visit around three months after that. So I should have asked this question beforehand. When a patient begins to consider having the surgery and they first meet with you, what is the time frame for first meeting with you and the surgery? Um, a, it's it's because of I have I have a bit of a waiting list. So it's we normally it takes three months between the first time you meet me and you decide to go ahead with surgery till I have time in my in my schedule to uh, list the patient. So it's around we all roughly around three months. And it's a it, you need some cooling down period as well. You know it's not it's not good to have a consultation and go for surgery the following day. I think I, I would say a minimum of a couple of weeks time for reflection. Uh, maybe a bit longer, um, get you to read the material we provide, come back with questions. We have a lot of that. People, once they've gone, read the material, they had the consultation, a lot more questions start to come to mind. They come back to me, we answer these questions. They have time to meet my therapy colleagues as well. So the three-month lead time is a bit longer than I would like. I would like to make it a little bit shorter, but not too short. I think maybe six to eight weeks is around good time between first visit and the actual surgery time. I like that processing time. Very important. Yeah. It's it, a big- it is very important. You know, in, 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 this, in this day and age, uh, pe- people go on, the, on YouTube, they see results, they like the results, they come to you and they were like, I want this yep. voice. Yep. You're, you're not going to get that voice. You're going to get your voice in a higher pitch. And so, uh, you know, so... This instant gratification, instant results, I cannot, you know, I can't provide that. So patients need to, you know, be aware of the process and then take their time to understand the process and come to, come to the right conclusion and the right decision, hopefully. What are some of the top questions patients do have for you? Um, um, a, a lot. Um, we talk about, you know, people ask, how, how am I going to sound post-op? And what are the results? And am I guaranteed that going to get this result? And unfortunately, it's not. There is, with all voice feminization surgery, including with the glottoplasty, there is a degree of variability between, between people. It's because, again, we're changing a single parameter that controls uh, fundamental frequency. So when I look into my results, I, I've presented recently in the full voice conference in um, San Francisco. So I presented my first 110 and it's, it's a naturally distributed result. So the majority of people will get around the center, around the average, which is around 62 hertz increase. But some people will get on the lower centile, some will get on higher centile. So there is a variation of the results. So that's one thing. Um, I get asked 
I don't get asked that question a lot, but something I make sure that I raise is some trade-offs that people are going to go through. Voice projection will be affected. It's fact of life. I, when I shorten the vocal cord, some projection will be lost. Projection, ability to raise your voice, project over a large room, crowded room, will be limited. So that, that's something I make sure that people understand the impact on their social life, but more importantly, work. Is range sometimes limited as well? Um, range is variable. I think if, if you look into what's published in literature, it's almost a toss of a coin. It's 50-50. Some people will get wider range, some people will get narrower range. With cricothyroid approximation, the range will be a lot smaller. So the range will go up, but it will be very narrow. It, it varies, but it narrows the range significantly. I think with glottoplasty, the bottom of the range will go up, the fundamental frequency will go up the top of the range often does not go up anymore. So it, a net effect that it narrows the range, but in the right, in the right direction. Uh, but some people will get wider range. Some people can go up with, with singing. Sometimes surgeries don't always produce the results people want. What, what is your view on that? What happens then? Yes. Uh, so there is a there is a degree of failure associated with the surgery. Again, glottoplasty is a lot better than crack throat approximation, which works in like 70% of cases. I think with the glottoplasty, there is suture breakdown, which can happen. I think in, in, my, in my practice is around 3%, 3.5% uh, that the suture do not hold or they do break down after surgery. And this is something we can go back and correct. But there is also a group of patients, possibly around 5%, who will have Excellent result, as in surgically, it looks beautiful. It's healed, it's healed fine, no problems. But the voice had increased very little or has not increased at all. And that, and that does, unfortunately, is disappointing, but it's not a, not a lot I can change in that because, again, it's a single parameter that we're trying to change. There are all the other aspects around it. However, what I tell my patients when they don't have that increase in fundamental frequency I always say, give therapy a second chance. Now the tool you have to use has been adjusted. The instrument is, is the right size. It might be a lot easier to do the things that you couldn't do with therapy previously. So give therapy a second chance. And if that still doesn't work, then we look into what alternative surgical approaches we can offer, including mainly the muscle reduction or in rare cases, crocodile approximation. Mm-hmm. I, from a therapist's view, I love that. I have had... Uh, patients come back following their surgeries and we have through the therapy achieved the voice that they were looking for in addition to the surgeries we've also had them come back and not be happy and they go after more surgeries and more surgeries and more surgeries to the point where their voice is almost non-functional yeah yeah and then and then that's on both patient and surgeon to to say Enough is enough that we're not doing the right thing. You know, we all, we love to help. We love to help. And, and I, I'd like to think that the motivation in the majority of surgeons is their keenness to help and they want to try to do the right for their patient. But at some point, you need to take a step back and think, am I doing the right thing? And then take the patient with you on this journey. Explain why you're reasoning. Absolutely. Absolutely. What are some factors that a patient can do to increase the success rate of their gender-affirming voice surgery? Um, I, I think following post-operative instruction is very important. I, you know, we may, maybe we overdo it a bit on worrying the patient about don't cough and don't talk. But I think 
there there is there is a place for that. So follow the instruction, um, vocal rest, etc. Keep yourself well hydrated. All of that, you know, voice hygiene post-operatively. Look after uh, your vocal cords as the healing happens. Don't rush into going back to work. I've, I've seen patients that. 10 days later, they're back in the office on Zoom calls and then they ended up with muscle tension, dysphonia, and it takes so long to unpick and then try to get them to relax their larynx and then restart the process. So take your time. Don't rush into a, you know vocal use and work with a therapist. Don't say, I've done my surgery. I have like one session. It might sound good. I'm, I'm out of here. You know, Post-operative therapy is essential. And it's not a checkbox. You're correct. I'm done. The surgery's done. I've done this. My time is 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 click click yeah. click check check. It's a very dynamic and sensitive process that is individual for each person. Exactly. It's a process, and then that that process varies from person to person. It's I have patients that they will go see therapists because I make them go see therapists, but that's <laughs> not the right, that's that's not the right thing. You know, just, in, you know, genuinely, if you want the best outcome from the surgery, it, therapy is as essential as the surgeon. So stepping outside of the box just a little bit, my specialty is dysphagia. I'm presenting at a national conference next week. Is there a correlation between gender-affirming voice surgery and dysphagia, which I also know is a specialty of yours? I haven't seen myself, and I'm not aware that there is evidence in literature. Uh, there might be something outside that I'm not aware of. I, I'm, I'm not aware of any. Yeah, I have patients that they report change of swallowing in early days, but, you know, it, it, it settles down very quickly. I, I don't think it, it just is the scope, is the jet ventilation, is the dryness, is the mucus, is the change of sensation, but it settled down to, to normal very quickly. I, I don't think there is a correlation, not what I've seen. I didn't think so either, but I thought you would be the one to ask. Yeah, thank you. No, I, ha- I have not seen a link. So final words of advice for the individual who is considering voice, um, gender-affirming voice surgery. Take your time, do your research, see the right surgeon, see more than one surgeon if you're not, you know, there is nothing wrong with taking a second opinion. You know, I frequently will ask people, please go and seek a second opinion. Have that wider, different point of view and work with a therapist. Surgery is one aspect, you know, pitch is one aspect of um, voice that perceived as feminine. You need to address the overall picture and it's essential that therapy and surgery go hand in hand for a good outcome. Mm-hmm. Any words of advice for the speech therapist working with the client recovering from? Um, know, know your surgeon, you know, communicate with your surgeon. Go, go, go and see the surgery, how the surgery is done, you know. Um, and then there are, there are two sides to this. There is the standard, you, you know, just go into your toolbox, look into, is post-operative, is somebody who had surgery on the vocal cord, they have very hoarse, very weak voice post-operatively, and work on your standard approach to voice therapy post-operatively. So all, all therapists have that in their toolbox, you know, just, just go back into your toolbox, use the tool that you have, and then work on the therapy, on the feminization therapy as well. It's funny you mentioned go watch a surgery because when I was practicing in England, I was invited in to watch surgeries and I've never watched surgeries here. How does the speech therapist approach an ENT to say, 
interested in? How do we be, build those relationships? In, in, in ENT, we're, we're a really friendly bunch in general. You know, like we're, we're, we're one of the easy, easygoing, approachable specialty in terms of between surgeons. Yeah. So, and then we, we work closely with speech and language therapists within our hospital. So just raise interest, get in touch, speak to your surgeon and say, everyone will walk, welcome, will welcome you in their uh, operating theater. I, I know very few surgeons that would not, I, I, I can't think of a surgeon that will turn it down flat out. You know, there is oh, yeah. the hoops and logistics that you need to jump through, but I, I'm very, I will really welcome any speech and language therapy. In fact, in our, in our national health service, when we have a new therapist joining our team, because again, I work in airway stenosis mostly in my uh, national health service. So we have a quite a large team. So when we have a new therapist joining us, we, it's part of their induction to come to our theater and see how the operation is done. See, just, just understand how the operation, what's the impact, how, how much trauma is there to the larynx, etc. So your surgeon is, will be very welcoming. Just approach them. Wonderful. Well, thank you for your time today. And thank you for opening. You reached out to me and said, let's have this interview. Let me share with you what I do. And I'm so excited about this. We're going to be pulling on um, some uh, gender affirming voice patients who, um, and we're going to meet with them. We're also going to be working with some therapists that work with this population. And I'm just so excited to be having these conversations. So thank you very, very much for your time. No, thank you very much for having me. It's an absolute pleasure. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed that as much as I did. One of the things that struck me most about that conversation was Mr. Aliachi was just as humble and as authentic as could be. This podcast is all about finding guests, finding listeners, finding people who share this purpose, this drive that we all are looking for in creating a space where we can come together and support one another. I so enjoyed that conversation. Uh, you may have noticed about a third of the way in, I got a little nervous and I think I asked him the same question twice, but just in a different angle. And then I got out of my head and I got back into the conversation. So it's okay to get nervous a little bit with some of the people that we talk to and some of the areas that we are branching into. It's okay to not know everything and to not be perfect. And to also really show up as our genuine authentic selves, which is what I think this conversation was all about. So I am really glad you listened all the way through to the end of this. If you're watching this on YouTube, I'm really glad that you watched all the way to the end of this. And thanks for coming aboard. Please like, share, follow, subscribe, all of those things to help build this podcast up, The Missing Link for Fresh SLPs. Nope, The Missing Link for SLPs. Go to our website, freshslp.com. Find us on Instagram at Fresh SLP. Find me on LinkedIn. Reach out to me. Tell me what you want, what you need, and we will keep these conversations going. And we may just invite Mr. Al Shadwan, Mr. Al Yagchi back again, because I would love to hear more about his food blog and some of the other work that he's doing. So take care and looking forward to having you listen again.